I think one of the great things about the Bible is that every book that you turn to, every passage that you turn to, it genuinely you could just keep going and going on that passage. You could, you could dig into it, you could look at it from different perspectives. What we're trying to do is, is take it back and just remind ourselves of some of the core, some of the basic ideas. The basic idea that I want to think about this afternoon is kingship. This is all about kingship. And about, or, or we could put it another way, kingship and lordship. Um, we're going to look at how that's working out because it's not quite obvious uh, in the passage, but I think when we see what's going on, when we see the pictures that are being painted in this passage, it will become hopefully a little bit clearer. Central to the message of the Gospel is the idea of kingship. In fact, central to the whole of the Bible is the idea of kingship. It's, it, if, we, if we want to take one kind of, one idea, one theme, and place it over the top of the grand narrative of the Bible, it's God as King in Jesus Christ. So if, if you take anything or if you get everything else, keep a hold of that. Because if we get that as our kind of big signpost for the story of the Bible, God as King in Jesus Christ, we are getting somewhere in terms of what the Bible is trying to explain to us, communicate to us. It starts with the idea of a Jesus as King. King who makes himself present with his people. He's the creator king. He's the one who sustains and gives and provides a way to live. He creates a kingdom and an environment. That kingdom is a garden. That's the way it's portrayed. But it concludes again with another tree and another ki- or the same king and a people again. At the end of the Bible, we've got that reestablished. In between that, in a chapter and a half from the beginning, chapter 3 of Genesis, so from the beginning of Genesis, just two and a half chapters in, we've got a crisis where the relationship with that king is utterly destroyed. So we start with this high place, this place of high relationship, and we drop off a cliff so deep so tragic that the Bible describes it that we are utterly separated from that kingship of Jesus. The rest of the history of time, the rest of the message of the Bible is about how we move from that place of crisis to re-established kingship and relationship and presence with King Jesus. That's the Bible. That's the message of the Bible. Now we might look at that and think we, we might look at that and think, well, that's quite interesting. Um, am I interested in that? <laughs> Hopefully this afternoon we'll see why it's so important. Because the kingship that is described in very physical terms with land and nations takes a turn in the, in the gospel of Jesus, and the kingship becomes the kingship of our hearts and our being. So we are citizens of one place or another 
Bunyan puts it like this, we are citizens of the city of destruction and our hope is that we become citizens of the celestial city. We become citizens of the kingdom of Jesus. How does that move? Well, this, as I said, this is all about kingship. The first thing that we see is a surprising king. Look at how this text opens up. Jesus said to them, go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter into it, you'll find a colt there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? I'll pause there. I didn't know that this was happening in Yorkshire. But when Ash read it, I think maybe it did. He kind of gave that real kind of, what are you doing there? I think that's absolutely the way Mark is trying to communicate it. He's communicating it in the reality of the questions that people are asking in real life. And they say, what are you doing? What are you doing with that cult? The Lord needs it. We'll send it back here shortly. Jesus sends his disciples to get donkey. But with that donkey, the kingship unfolds. A few years ago, I had, I had a tremendous, it was a real privilege. It was great to go to Israel to spend a week there. But each of the places that we stopped, we were in a group um, of other church leaders, and, and everywhere that we stopped, most places where you stop, there's a church has been built there. Um, roughly in the location of where the events happened. But everywhere we stopped, we read the part of the Bible which related to that particular location. I ended up with this particular passage. And it was incredibly moving. Not the church wasn't particularly dramatically moving. What was moving was the idea that somewhere within probably a few hundred yards of where I was stood. This happened. Jesus sent his disciples. And you can see a few hundred yards from the church, you can see a kind of rough track that heads over a little ridge on the Mount of Olives and then drops down the valley and then back up the other side to Jerusalem. And you get the idea of precisely what is going on here. Jesus sends his disciples to get this donkey because the Lord needs him. Then he gets onto the donkey and he rides this donkey across this little track, down into the valley, up the other side of the valley, and up towards the city of Jerusalem and through the gates of the city. Look at verse 7. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw the cloak over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Look at what is going on. This peasant preacher gets onto a donkey, and as he travels down into the valley up the other side, it breaks out in praise. And he rides a donkey into the city. There are massive, kind of lived out, kind of acted out statements being made in this. One of the things that happened, in two things that happened in the ancient world. One, and you've seen it all over the place in cinema, was the idea of the Roman triumph. Uh, you've seen it, I'm sure Ben-Hur, all of that kind of thing. The, the returning heroes, the triumphant victor rides into the city with all of the entourage and everybody is cheering and proclaiming the victory. What I find absolutely fascinating is culturally we can't let go of that idea of triumph. Star Wars fans, end of a new hope, what happens? They march through the center of the rebel armies and there is cheering and celebration for the victors who have won. <laughs> but this king rides into the city on a donkey, actually on the colt of a donkey. Because there's another statement that is going on, and in the ancient world, a ruler came on a donkey rather than a war horse when he came in peace. Isn't that fascinating? So Jesus is making this huge statement, I am arriving with a triumph, but I am coming in peace. Isn't that, that's breathtaking, I think. That in that act, Jesus is saying something. And if the kingdom is now our hearts, Jesus is saying in that act, I'm coming to you, I'm on my way, I'm coming as a triumphant victor, but I am coming in peace. I'm coming to bring peace. I think that was also a dramatic statement because what the Jews expected was that their Messiah ruler would come with military power and kick out the Romans. Freedom and liberty. And Jesus comes and he says, that is exactly what I am going to do, bring freedom and liberty, but it's not the kind of freedom and liberty that you think you need. It's a different kind of freedom and liberty. It's the freedom of peace with God. There's one thing that jumps out to me. What first thing is this? And this is just a really practical thing. If the king is humble, if the king is humble, how should his people be? How should the people of that kingdom be? They should be marked with the same humility because the leader sets the standard. The leader sets the agenda and he comes in peace and humility. 
but he also, in this act, he connects what he does and who he is with the Old Testament. Do you remember what it says in Mark chapter 1, verse 1? This is the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Do you remember we've looked at that time and time again? Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the promised one. Listen to what it says in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you. Righteous and victorious. That sounds incredible, doesn't it? Righteous, victorious. Here's the king. Lowly. And riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, the action of Jesus to say, go and get the colt, wasn't a thought up on the spur of the moment, this is what I'm going to do. It was a fulfillment of his declaration that I am the Messiah. You've been waiting for this to happen, and I'm the one who has been promised. So we see a surprising king. Secondly, we see a surveying king. What do, what do you expect a king arriving back at his kingdom to do? You know, Robin Hood, all that kind of stuff. King Richard comes back and King John's kind of decimated, even if you only know it from the Disney version. King John has decimated Britain. And King Richard comes back and restores order. That kind of kingship theme again and again. Hamlet. Lord of the Rings, the Lion King, actually, although people call the Lion King Hamlet in fur. It's all the same idea. It's the idea of returning to a kingdom, looking at what it's like, and saying what needs to be done to fix it. <laughs> and so we have a surveying king. Look at what we read in verse 11. Where do you go to survey the state of the kingdom. You go to the place where the law is set. You go to the place where the heart of the country is. You go to the place where the identity of the people are. And you say, what's it like? You, you, we've seen the pictures of terrible destruction in places like Syria, haven't we? We've seen it again and again over our recent history. You don't go and try to understand the state of Syria by going out into the countryside, although that will tell you something. You understand it deeply by going to the center. And Jesus goes to the very center. Verse 11, what's the state of the kingdom of God's people? Jesus entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple courts because that's the center. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. That's what it says. It's just a little verse, and yet it is so, so important. Jesus comes and he surveys the situation. He looks at the state of the kingdom. 
Here's the thing. When this becomes a kingdom of our hearts, do you realize that Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, comes and assesses the state of our kingdom? He assesses our hearts. He looks in and He says, what's ruling? He looks in and He says, what's worship? He looks in and He says, what's valued? What's our attitudes? What do we hold as really important? The surveying goes on. Because that's where the kingdom resides now, within our inner beings. And Jesus comes and He surveys. What would the result be of the surveying of our hearts? I know what the result of the surveying of my heart is. It's a corrupt kingdom. It's a mess of a kingdom. It's a kingdom that worships the wrong things. It's a kingdom which has rules absolutely askew. It creates rules for one and rules for another, where the one rule is always centrally to the benefit of the individual. It's a kingdom where worship is misdirected to things that are temporary rather than the eternal God. As it says in Romans, we worship the created things rather than the Creator. That's the state of the kingdom of our hearts. And Jesus comes and He surveys that kingdom. So we've got a surprising king. We've got a surveying king. Now we have a focused king. Look what it continues to say. Verse 12. Just hold that idea that Jesus enters into the temple in your minds for a minute. Because we now move to the next day. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, so they've gone, Jesus has gone into Jerusalem on the donkey. He's gone into the temple and then he's left and gone back to Bethany. The next day they went into uh, the next day they were leaving Bethany and Jesus was hungry seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf. He went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said, may no one ever eat from you, from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. That seems, that seems such an odd thing, doesn't it? Apart from later on, we find that the disciples realize that the fig tree that Jesus speaks to in that way is withered. What's going on? What's going on is that Jesus is still focused on when he was in the temple the night before. That's still working out. In fact, in this action, we kind of see the ongoing mental journey that Jesus is making. He's focused on that issue. He's hungry, but when he goes over to the fig tree, which doesn't have any figs, his mind is still on the fact that what? The kingdom over there that should be bearing fruit isn't bearing fruit. And so he's saying that's the end of that kingdom. 
That is such a dramatic thing. And it's worked out in a fig tree. Why? Because it's allowing us to see into the mind of Jesus. You know, sometimes I think that we have this idea that Jesus is almost an automatic being. We read all the things he does and we rarely get into the opportunity to see into the mind and the mental journey of Jesus. The fact that things are said and he does things and they work themselves out in the next hours or the next days or the next weeks or months. And he's looking at this and he's thinking, the kingdom that should be bearing fruit is not bearing fruit. I'm hungry, I'm going to go and look at that fig tree and now I'm going to curse that fig tree because on my mind is the fact that the kingdom isn't bearing fruit and I'm going to give the opportunity for my disciples to see that I am concerned about a kingdom that is not bearing fruit. I'll give them a visual aid so that they don't think that I'm just dropping in to Jerusalem and doing things but I'm on a journey. I'm on a mental journey. And we have a focused king. Here's the thing. When Jesus starts to engage with us, it's not a one-size-fits-all. He doesn't just kind of come in and say, right, phew, that's how it's to be. But you are different to me. And the focus of Jesus is that the kingdom that you live in is corrupt, and the kingdom that I live in is corrupt, but they are corrupt in different ways. They both need to go, but Jesus is going to engage with us individually. But he's going to say this, the kingdom has got to die. It's got to wither away. He's effectively saying we have got to cut off the life to that kingdom that currently resides in your heart and in my heart. So we have a focused king. The final thing that we have is a purging king. Do you know in all the time that I've read these accounts in the Gospels of Jesus purging the temple, I have never seen this until this week. I've often, well up to now, I've, I've always thought that Jesus goes into the temple, look at what he does on reaching Jerusalem, one of the most iconic moments in the life of Jesus. Jesus enters into Jerusalem and Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He, he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. That's what Jesus does. It's, one of the, it's, it's really well-known moment in the life of Jesus. He goes in, imagine it, normal temple life, outer court, absolutely busting with activity. In, 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 in Israel, in, in this part of the world, this is the Amazon or eBay of the area. I'm not kidding, it was the center of commerce. 
the temple courts. And Jesus walks into that and he gets hold of tables of money changers, tips them over, clears people out. It is just a spectacular scene. It's just mind-blowing. It's been the source of all sorts of pieces of art down through the years, the purging of the temple. And I've always thought, man, that's a moment where the, the kind of the just, just anger of Jesus is really seen. He's gone into that temple and he's been, he's been confronted with what it is and he's turned over the tables and he's cleared them out. And I thought, he's done the right thing. And there we see the sense of Jesus' active justice. And I have always missed the fact that he went into the temple the night before and he saw it like that. And he stood and watched. And it wasn't a fit of peak. It was, look at what is going on. I'm going to walk away. I'm going to think. I'm going to respond. And this is what I'm going to do. You know, people have talked about, is this a moment where Jesus' anger boils up? A million miles from it when I read it properly. He's gone in the night before and he says, now's the time to purge this temple. What's he saying by doing that? He's quite simply saying this. Who could walk into the temple and kick it around and chuck stuff around and throw people out? Who can do that? Only the person who has the right to the ownership of the temple. And in the time, that would be the high priest and the Levites and those, those who are kind of organizing temple business. And Jesus is saying, you don't own the temple. I am Lord of this place as well. Because this temple is the place of the worship of my Father. And I'm, I'm going to cleanse it. I'm going to clean it. It's going to be kicked out. Because what this, this mess displays is quite simply this. The law of the kingdom is messed up. The justice of the kingdom is messed up. The righteousness of the kingdom is messed up. You've made it into a den of robbers. That's what you've done. You've twisted the righteous kingdom of God, and you've corrupted it. Why? Because that is what we always do. We always corrupt. Because our hearts are corrupt, because that's the way we are. And Jesus comes into that temple and He says, this is my place, this is changing. Look at the response verse 18. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because of the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. What we've seen time and time again is that the crowds are amazed at Jesus. They turn to Jesus. They are in awe of Jesus. I mean, they've just the day before thrown their cloaks and branches on the ground as he's entered into Jerusalem. They are amazed at him. But the leaders realize this is, this is a crisis. He's got a groundswell of feeling. But look what he's turning over. 
He's turning over what we see as our right. When Jesus breaks into the kingdom of our hearts, He surveys. He focuses on the specific issues. Jesus went into that temple and He turned over the things that were corrupt because He'd focused on it. But He purges. He seeks to purge our hearts. And our response is I want to kill Him. Because I want to rule. I don't want you to rule over me. I want to be more like a a high priest. I don't want you to have the rule. I don't want to let go of the things that I've got a hold of. I trust in the things that I've got hold of. I trust in the laws that I've created for myself. Your laws look strange and weak and as though I lose all control and I lose my security. That's what's going on with these chief priests and, and leaders. That they're looking at, they're thinking, we're losing everything. That's what Jesus does with you and me. He breaks into our hearts and he purges the corruption. It's all about kingship. It's all about the coming king, the arrival of the king, that great theme that J.R. Tolkien understood. The arrival of the king is great news, but it is great news only for those who submit to that king and enter into his kingdom. Here's the thing. We know we know instinctively that we hold on to some things. But we also know that those things that we hold on to let us down so often. How did the purging king arrive? He arrived on a donkey. He came in peace. And Jesus comes to you and he comes to me and he says, in peace... We're going to turn over these tables of your heart. We're going to throw out these money-changing attitudes that you have. We're going to get rid of these things that you rely on because honestly, honestly, if you trust in me, you will be happier. You will be more at peace than you could ever, ever, ever have imagined. You think you won't be, but you will be. That is the kingdom of Jesus working out in our hearts, not just working out on the pages of an ancient book. And I pray that that might be our experience for all of us here. The ongoing purging of our hearts by King Jesus.